Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Captain Jesuit from the flight deck. We're above 30,000 feet, so it's now safe to turn on your electronic devices and move about the cabin. We've got clear skies from one horizon to another, just Purple Mountain's majesty. Shining Sea. Below us, you'll see a rural area with a bunch of unsuspecting, God-fearing, tax-paying Americans. And you'll notice we've started dumping a cloud of noxious chemicals, heavy metals, and God knows what else all over those folks in the form of chemtrails. Now, I know some of you back there are thinking I said contrails, the straight-line cloud formations that jets leave in high altitudes. No, we're talking about chemtrails, which linger and spread in the air for hours, causing respiratory ailments, chronic illnesses, and death. You know, I'm not supposed to tell y'all any of this, but getting from point A to point B isn't really the main purpose of this flight. No, we're up here to spray chemtrails all over our fellow citizens. See, me, your co-pilot, and most of the other flyers, aeronautical engineers, air traffic controllers, airline owners, plus the entire infrastructure of the military, the feds, and God knows who else in the United States, have all agreed to use secretly modified planes, load tons of lethal chemicals into their cargo holds on a daily basis, and spray them willy-nilly as we fly. Oh, and it's supposed to be a big secret, so don't tell anybody. Okay, thanks for your time. Now just sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. This is your captain. Our flight crew says that you have some questions, so I'll answer a couple. First, from 13C. Are you serious? Yeah, of course I am. I'm surprised none of you have heard at least something about all this. It's all over the internet. There are hundreds of books with all the details. And seat 26B? Why would you do this to Americans? That's a good question. You know, first of all, I should mention this is a global conspiracy, so it's not just Americans. But why do I do it? Who knows? Maybe I'm fighting global warming. Or testing geoengineering for when CO2 goes really bananas. Or just controlling local weather conditions to serve my military or corporate masters. Or maybe I'm trying to force people to get vaccinations by breathing the air, since so many folks are refusing standard vaccination schedules these days. Or maybe it's mind control, or poisoning people with aerosolized heavy metals to reduce the population to a more manageable level. Whatever it is, it's definitely all somehow tied together with that harp antenna array they got up in Alaska. Yeah, they tell you that's for ionospheric research. God, you'll believe anything. But when you get down to it, I just like spraying people because I'm a total sociopath, and I hate each and every one of you. All us pilots feel the same way. When it comes to poisoning you little people on the ground, who cares what the reason is? It's just a lot of fun. We know you have many options when it comes to air travel, but since all of us are in on this conspiracy, you don't really have any choice at all, do you? Well, I've got to get back to spraying chemtrails on innocent people. So sit back, relax, just be glad you're in this plane, instead of under it. Yes, that all sounds absurd, because it is. But an astonishing number of people, including probably some folks you know personally, think if civilian and military pilots were honest, that's what they'd be saying. So let's see why they're wrong, 
and why it matters. Strap in, ensure your tray tables are in their upright and locked position, and take a deep breath. That isn't the scent of chemtrails in the air, it's the return of the paranoid strain. This episode of The Paranoid Strain was filmed in front of a live studio audience. No, it wasn't. Thanks for joining us for this, our sixth episode, and the first since we wrapped up our epic three-part series on the history and beliefs of the right-leaning, anti-Semitic, anti-government, extremist, sovereign citizen movement. If you missed these or any of our other episodes, then rejoice. Thanks to our advanced podcast technology, you can go into your app of choice and download all five of these suckers to listen to at your convenience. In fact, we very much encourage you to do so. We just ask that you not tell any of the other podcasters so they don't get jealous of our superior tech. I'm your host, esoteric blogger, author, lecturer, original thinker, and phenomenologist, Fearful Jesuit. Wait, that's not my intro. That's how one of the blowhards I'm going to make fun of in this episode describes himself. Anyway, we're here to help you understand why you keep having to hear about nonsense conspiracy theories in the workplace, the dentist's office, or the grocery checkout line but mostly on Facebook. As I just noted, we've spent quite a few episodes going ham, as the kids say. We think they say that. On right-wing crazies, so now's the point where the left takes a beating. Certainly, there are right-leaning, conspiracy-minded survivalist types out there who believe the government is spraying them with evil chemicals from above, but given that the Jesuit household is ensconced in the bluest of left-wing bubbles on the West Coast, we can assure you that chemtrails are as progressive as Bernie Sanders, though thankfully less popular. And we're going to also have to cover HARP, the high-frequency active auroral research program up in Alaska. Why? Because it's a very interesting atmospheric research project. Nah, we're fucking with you. It's part of the conspiracy, of course. This is our first science conspiracy theory, which means we're going to dip lightly into genuine scientific topics, like contrails, ionospheric research, and the potential for geoengineering. The chemtrail conspiracists managed to smuggle each of these into their theory, yet get the facts almost exactly wrong. But don't worry. We won't get too technical, and we're still going to laugh at the expense of delusionals. Standard operating procedure. Seems only fair that we have one of the obsessed usher us into the conspiracy proper, so we're going to let Peter A. Kirby, author of Chemtrails Exposed, a new Manhattan project, do the honors. There are hundreds of specialized jet aircraft routinely spraying the Earth and billions of its inhabitants with megatons of toxic metals. It's part of the first planetary-level scientific endeavor. In fact, this scientific endeavor is the biggest in human history. And it's a big secret. I know. These are shocking claims. Yes. Shocking. Bullshit claims. But before we explain why, we're going to let him insult us and our audience for doubting his veracity. Sorry, we have a weakness for preening self-righteousness. 
Many people are simply uninformed. Many people are disinformed because they listen to the corporate media propagandists. The simple fact that we are constantly breathing in toxins that dull our brains doesn't help. Whether or not the majority of our vaccine, GMO, and fluoride-addled American public comes to grips with these facts is largely irrelevant. Irrelevant people will remain so. That's the majority of the population. They will go along with whatever comes along. When death comes along, they will gladly slit their own throats. So, my fellow sheeple, Let's revel in our wrongness, starting with a definition of contrails. You know, the real-world phenomenon that the imaginary chemtrail phenomenon is based on. Okay, so even the most die-hard chemtrail believers out there will acknowledge that contrails, those thin cloud-like lines that spread out behind jet planes that fly overhead, are a normal effect of operating those engines in certain atmospheric conditions. Our friends at NASA have a whole webpage devoted to the phenomenon of contrails, which, though it never once mentions chemtrails, is clearly written from a patient, somewhat weary perspective by scientists who are sick of re-explaining the facts to true believers. Contrails are clouds formed when water vapor condenses and freezes around small particles, aerosols, that exist in aircraft exhaust. Some of that water vapor comes from the air around the plane, and some is added by the exhaust of the aircraft. Contrails are all made of the same materials and are formed in the same way, but exist for different lengths of time. But surely the persistent contrails that linger in the air for hours, or even more suspiciously spread across the sky, those are some other sinister phenomenon, right? Well, no. Persistent, non-spreading contrails remain visible after the airplane has disappeared. They look like long, broad, fuzzy white lines. This is a type most likely to affect climate because they cover a larger area and last longer than short-lived or persistent contrails. So there are different types of contrails, but they're all contrails. And none of them contain any of the mysterious substances that conspiracists allege, and none are deliberately sprayed by a nefarious cabal. Now, just because contrails are a known, predictable phenomenon resulting from the standard operation of aircraft engines doesn't mean that they're not attention-grabbing. As noted on the invaluable chemtrail skeptic site Contrail Science, people have been vaguely uneasy about contrails since well before the jet age. Turns out that under certain circumstances, even propeller engines will produce contrails at high altitudes. The site also reprints an article from a Galveston, Texas newspaper in 1951 describing the mysterious phenomenon produced by a military aircraft circling overhead which reads as follows. Mystery veils vapor wreath in Galveston's sunny skies. It wasn't a sky-ridden soft drink ad, and the weathermen couldn't offer an explanation either for the fat white streaks of vapor hanging motionless in Galveston skies around noon Saturday, but it seems fairly certain that a six-engined B-36 left the heavy white trail in its wake as it circled over the city. Neither municipal airport nor Civil Aeronautics Authority officials had a flight plan on the bomber. Both outfits, however, believed that the jet-powered B-36 was on a training mission from Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth. An Air Force spokesman at Carswell Base refused to comment on either the bomber or its vapor trail when contacted late Saturday by the news. The mystery of the massive vapor streaks was their long, steady persistence in breeze-stirred skies rather than their expulsion from the jet-powered plane. Airport officials commented that a vapor trail usually fades away swiftly, as in sky writing. They also said that planes may leave vapor trails when flying at high altitudes. But it was unlikely, they added, that the air would remain still enough to keep the vapor from fading swiftly. 
But if contrails have been around, and even occasionally raising eyebrows, for more than a century, then what spurred the modern chemtrail confusion? As with many conspiracies, there's a patient zero. In this case, that's a guy named William Thomas. Thomas began making a name for himself in conspiracy circles with his claims that the well-understood phenomenon of contrails had recently taken a sinister turn. The then-emerging internet was the first place he started getting the attention of the gullible, but soon he was a go-to guest on a number of conspiracy-friendly outlets, the most prominent of which, by far, was the Art Bell Coast to Coast AM radio show. Columbia. Here is William Thomas. Will, welcome to the program. Back to the program, actually. Thank you, Art. It's a pleasure to be back with you. You've got to tell us how you became involved, how you became suspicious, how you investigated, and what you found. Because normally, as I said, if you were to talk about contrails being dangerous, most Americans would go, lock that guy in a rubber room. Contrails are contrails. Give me a break. Right? Contrails are sometimes contrails, and it appears, Art, that sometimes they're not contrails. And as an investigative journalist for some 30 years, I am excruciatingly aware that every time I report on this story, I put my reputation and credibility on the line, and I'm ready to do that tonight with some new information. Eight weeks ago, I got a call from my managing editor at Environment News Service saying, check out this guy named William Wallace down in Washington State. Mr. Wallace reports that he has been watching jet aircraft, very large aircraft, flying back and forth over his remote mountain cabin for hours and days, laying down a grid-like pattern of contrails that he says has made himself and his wife Anne very ill, as well as a neighbor living nearby. Mm -hmm. I finally got a hold of Mr. William Wallace. We're going Wallace. to give the legendary Mr. Bell his due later in this episode, but for now, suffice it to say that in his heyday, there was no more friendly, uncritically accepting place in the universe for a true believer in any conspiracy theory to go and coast to coast. And Thomas's appearances were a hit with Bell's audience, who in the fat and happy, yet millennially uneasy late Clinton era, were eager to hear about the shit too scandalous for the X-Files. And Thomas brought the goods. Here we find him regaling Art with the tale of his decidedly unorthodox attempts at high-altitude forensic analysis. Um, what do we know, if anything more now, about what seems to be in these chemtrails? We had reports, for example, of spider-like stuff falling out of the sky, spider-like, mind you, and then people even getting samples of it in bottles and it virtually disappearing uh, within hours. So what do we know? We know from earlier clean samples, that is, samples taken off uncontaminated surfaces, that we are dealing in some cases with Pseudomonas bacteria and a host of uh, fungus that can lead to upper respiratory problems. These are from low-level uh, sprays or dumps of gel-like material. We do not have samples of actual chemtrails taken at altitude. I got up in a light plane last summer and went chasing after these chemtrails. We were only able to get up to 10,000 feet in this Cessna. We had very sophisticated sampling gear on board, but the pilot estimated the contrail he thought we were chasing was at about 19,000 feet. So we couldn't get close enough to get a good sample. We need to get up there in the uh, higher altitudes and get samples from these aircraft. 
Yeah, he's very scientifically trying to catch chemtrails from a Cessna. Thomas's weirdo antics, starting with his first appearance in 1999, lit a fire under the chemtrail movement. And as the internet expanded through the 2000s, so did Tales of Chemtrails, with true believers undeterred by patient debunkings issued by atmospheric, aeronautical, and military experts. These days, chemtrails have become well ensconced as a durable feature of the American conspiracy theory landscape. A poll in 2011 found that 2.6% of respondents believe it is completely true that there is a government program that deliberately puts harmful chemicals in the air, and 14% believed it was partially true. According to a 2013 poll conducted by public policy polling, 5% of U.S. respondents answered yes to the question, do you believe that the exhaust seen in the sky behind airplanes is actually chemicals sprayed by the government for sinister reasons or not? While 8% weren't sure. Small percentages, to be certain. But in a country of 320 million people, that's 1.6 and 2.5 million souls, respectively. And in some areas, the incidence of belief is far higher. So while chemtrails remain a fringy sort of conspiracy theory, at least in comparison to heavy hitters like the JFK assassination and the faked moon landing, we'll get to them soon. It still has the potential to impact on real people's lives, even if it's only those who unnecessarily cower in fear whenever planes pass overhead. So, for the sake of giving these folks their due, what do they claim about the chemtrail conspiracy? Claim 1. Chemtrails are totally different than contrails, and they're being sprayed in totally dissimilar patterns. Okay, what else? Claim 2. Below chemtrail spray areas have higher levels of aluminum and other metals in the soil and water than would otherwise be expected, and diseases associated with these contaminants are increasing exponentially in the affected areas. Hit me again. Claim 3. There's tons of evidence that the Army and other organizations have long dreamed of using sprays and sinister weapons like the HARP atmospheric station in Alaska to affect the weather. And finally... Claim 4. So-called geoengineers have ideas about combating global warming that sound exactly like what believers are saying that chemtrails do. Let's take these one at a time. First of all, let's address the suggestion that chemtrails are a completely different phenomenon than contrails. This difference is screamingly obvious to believers, and they're baffled that the rest of us don't seem to notice. For example, let's hear from H.R. Phillips, the humble scribe who labeled himself esoteric blogger, author, lecturer, original thinker, and phenomenologist that we promised to make fun of earlier. Here, he laments the possibility of convincing willfully ignorant folks like you and me. What are the few of us willing to accept that chemtrails are not normal jet vapor to do? How can we jog the memories of those disbelievers? Make them remember that our skies have not always been streaked like nowadays. Can we tell them that the real weirdness that surrounds the contrail issue is their inability to see them? That the lack of being curious is suspicious? That folks are acting like sheeple? Oh my god, Mr. Phillips, you are the winner. You're the first paranoid strain quote E to unironically use the term sheeple. Your mother must be so proud. Unless she's a sheeple, of course. That would be awkward, right? You son of a sheeple, you. Anyway, we don't just have to take HR's word for it. Here's Terence A. Smart, author of the cautious, sober effort, Global Elites Poisoning the People. There's a difference between aerosol trails, chemtrails, and condensation trails, contrails. Aerosol trails linger, sometimes for hours, and can spread out to form cloud-like material. Condensation trails from jet aircraft normally fade away within a minute. And of course, Mr. New Manhattan Project Kirby is insistent on the subject. A typical chemtrail first appears as a white line high in the sky emitted by a large jet airplane. These lines become diffuse as they flow down to Earth. Heavy spraying creates a thick haze over vast areas. Chemtrails often form X's and sometimes grid patterns. You can observe these phenomena with your own eyes. One just needs to look up. 
Surprisingly, atmospheric scientists are unimpressed with these testimonials. No matter how much chemtrail believers insist that what they're seeing is totally, definitively different than standard contrails, damn it, scientists beg to differ. In addition to the gentle reprovals issued by NASA, there are more pointed critiques from sites like Rational Wiki. The chemtrails label is usually applied to these longer contrails, with their very persistence put forward as evidence that they cannot be normal contrails, a logic reminiscent of disproving climate change with a freshly made snowball. Skeptic blog's Donald Prothero also points out that even race cars can produce contrails when they exceed 200 miles per hour. But the definitive smackdown is unquestionably the peer-reviewed study quantifying expert consensus against the existence of a secret, large-scale atmospheric spraying program. 77 experts were asked, among other things, whether four photos touted as irrefutable proof by pro-chemtrail websites were refutable. In each case, the experts were asked to explain each photo and offer a reference to the scientific literature that best described the mechanisms that account for the phenomena shown in the photo. They were also asked whether trails behind aircraft persist for longer periods today than when air travel first began, and the factors underlying any change. The results? Refutable with extreme prejudice. Every one of the respondents indicated that chemtrails were not the most likely explanation for the photos. Not a single image was seen as out of the ordinary, and they unanimously believed that the reasons behind these images were well-documented in the peer-reviewed literature. In other words, the experts took the chemtrail kook's best shots and didn't blink. Mr. Kirby is, of course, having none of this sober, scientific, expert nonsense. Although trolls online try to drag people into highly technical, obscure, and deceptive arguments about the formation of contrails, simple applications of deductive reasoning show that we're being sprayed. When two jet airplanes fly at a similar altitude, why is it that one will emit a persistent trail while the other does not? How does a plane fly along, emitting a trail that alternately persists, and then abruptly does not, and then abruptly does again? It is safe to assume that the engine is not being turned off and on. Why do the lines in the sky usually not follow common flight paths? Your author has witnessed all these things, and you can too. The very long answer to all of these questions is, go study atmospheric science. But that seems a bit uncharitable. Phil Plate, the creator of the entertaining Bad Astronomy website and all-around super smart dude, has gone to some trouble explaining chemtrail nonsense, but one of the most important insights to be gained from reading his work on the topic is that the atmosphere is just incredibly complex and that weird shit happens all the time. Back in 2011, he wrote a post for a Discover Magazine blog that comments on an amazing video of a cloud that appears to twist and dance in the air in a way that no cloud I've ever seen would behave. Over a brief period, a portion of that cloud appears thickens, and then suddenly disappears, only to reappear in a totally different formation in an instant. We've posted a link to this video in the show notes. Really, take a look. It depicts a genuine phenomenon that is, on its face, deeply weird, even unsettling. Certainly stranger than any chemtrail enthusiast claims about his pet conspiracy theory. But instead of using this video to cultivate a globe-spanning plot, Dr. Plate, an actual scientist, instead reached out to an expert who then explained what was happening in detail. It has to do with the sun reflecting off of ice crystals that are being constantly flipped electrically by a magnetic field. Alas, sometimes the explanation for seeming miracles makes them shatteringly mundane. Again, this isn't chemtrails. It's something far stranger, more ephemeral, and rare than seeing lots of trails hanging out behind jet aircraft. But it's easily explained, as are supposed chemtrails. Okay, on to claim two, that places on the ground beneath apparent chemtrail activity have higher levels of metals, including aluminum, than would be expected, and that these areas also are seeing an increase in diseases caused by these metals. Once again, examples of wild accusations are thick on the ground with the true believers. 
There's testimony from nameless, supposedly well-informed sources. A scientist working at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base claimed in 2002 that the two most common substances being sprayed into the atmosphere were aluminum oxide and barium stearate. He said, When you see planes flying back and forth making parallel lines, X patterns and grids in a clear sky, that's aluminum oxide. And also... High levels of toxins from aerosols have been reported and well documented in water, soil and air samples. Rain and snow tests show high aluminum in the rain as well. And finally, God love him, Mr. Manhattan Project himself has one doozy of a list. So what are they allegedly spraying? Aluminum oxide particles, arsenic, bacillian moles, barium salts, barium titanates, cadmium, calcium, chromium, desiccated human red blood cells, ethylene dibromide, enterobacter cloacal, enterobacteriaceae, human white blood cells, A, restrictor enzyme used in research labs to snip and combine DNA, lead, mercury, methyl aluminum, mold spores, mycoplasma, nano-aluminum coated fiberglass, nitrogen trifluoride, nickel, polymer fibers, pseudomonas aeruginosa, pseudomonas fluorescens, radioactive cesium, radioactive thorium, selenium, And I know this is going to shock you, but it turns out even YouTube isn't safe from these claims. I know! Arguably the most popular and influential chemtrail documentary is What in the World Are They Spraying? A competently made, if poorly thought through film that, in one scene, offers what seems like carefully analyzed data proving that the area beneath a supposed chemtrail spraying zone is simply rife with these toxins. the particulates are descending, and, and we have the test to prove that uh, we are being inundated with... Uh, levels of aluminum and particulates that are literally tens of thousands of times what would already be considered high. For example, off the side of Mount Shasta, if you can pan back, that's a, that's a landmark in Northern California, considered to be a pristine water source. Uh, aluminum, or snow sample off the side of Mount Shasta tested 61,000 parts per billion. Here's another test that's revealing 375,000 yeah. parts per million aluminum, barium at 3,000, 90 and strontium at 345. Yeah, that's from a lined pond. With EPDM fish safe pond liner, there is no chemicals, manufacturing materials at all in that pond liner that's uh, available to the aquatic life. It's designed for that purpose. The well that feeds this pond has been tested and retested. ND, no detectable aluminum, zero. The only other place this pond can receive water is rainfall. After several heavy spray days, there was a film that we, we received form on the surface of the water, and we tested that crust, and it was uh, aluminum and barium. Time to start refuting. Let's begin with the idea that chemtrails supposedly sprayed at standard jet cruising altitude are drifting down to affect the geographic areas immediately beneath them. Skeptic blog's Donald Prothero is all over this one, noting that releasing anything at 30,000 feet basically guarantees it's going to go everywhere except the ground directly below the spraying, and wherever it did settle, it would be far too diluted to have an effect. How many crop dusters do you see in the upper stratosphere? Undeterred, conspiracist Kirby insists the evidence of the spraying is all around us, if we would just figure out where to look. The new Manhattan Project requires an incredibly huge command and control apparatus. Hundreds of airplanes need to be commanded. The ionospheric heaters need to be operated. Atmospheric conditions need to be monitored and analyzed. Computers are needed to assist throughout. Today's military refers to such an apparatus as C4. Command, Control, Communications, and Computers. The development of these types of technologies used in weather modification and the atmospheric sciences is well documented. It's way too big to hide. It's probably hiding in plain sight. 
Kyle Hill on the skeptic website PsyCop takes claims like this head-on, calculating what it would really take to pull off a spraying conspiracy on the scale Kirby alleges, using the real physics of crop dusting to do so. Figuring that the U.S. makes up 2.38 billion acres, he notes that supposed chemtrail people dusters would require 120 billion gallons of mysterious death additive per week to spray on the nation on the regular. That's about the same volume as all of the oil transported by tankers globally each year. And if a single 747 can carry 250,000 pounds of cargo, that would mean each week there would be 4 million flights. Which represents 18 times the total air traffic that actually exists. And if each plane was responsible for a single flight daily, the conspirators would need nearly 3,000 times the number of 747s that have ever been built to carry off their crime. Oh, and remember those guys intoning solemnly about the amounts of metals found in their supposedly pristine lined pond? Yeah, that's bullshit too. With that, we transition to the first of our two interviews for this show, this one with Mick West, who has chosen the paranoid strain pseudonym Cirrus. He has a passion for debunking chemtrails, and indeed, his site ContrailScience.com is one of the best resources for accurate response to advocates' wild accusations. Well, when I first started to get interested in chemtrails, it was kind of because I was learning to fly. I was taking flying lessons, so I was learning a little bit about aviation weather. I just came across the Wikipedia article on chemtrails, and I thought it sounded like a strange conspiracy theory. And because I knew a little bit about the weather at the time, I thought I would just write a few articles about it, debunking it by explaining why contrails persist. And so I gave that a go and I thought, uh, you know, I'll just explain it and that'll be it. And uh, 10 years later, here I am. I think I came into it at, at a time when it People were starting to be interested in it in terms of there being like little stories on TV and there'd be little things on the Discovery Channel about it, uh, local stories on the news. So there was like kind of a constant stream of interest back then. It seemed like whatever I did, it didn't have very much effect. The main difficulty was actually getting this information through to the people who need it. The problem is that they are not going to come and look at my website. So I was kind of fighting a bit of a losing battle in that regard, but I kind of viewed it more eventually as a way of stopping the spread of the theory. And eventually, I think as more people heard about my website in the chemtrail community, more people would read it and, you know, it would actually help some people. I think that uh, you've got to think of it as a very long-term thing. It's like you're picking up a little bit of garbage on the beach. There's still a lot of garbage there, but, you know, every little helps. At some point in your history with the chemtrail movement, True Believers got together and created a, you know, pretty professional-looking documentary called What in the World Are They Spraying? If you're not familiar with chemtrails, it, it could sound very convincing. I mean, these are thoughtful individuals who are talking about this. So um, could you tell me, like, how you first came to hear about What in the World Are They Spraying and then how you responded? And I wrote this one long post, I debunked What in the World Are They Spraying? that kind of just looks at the main things that they say in the film and explains why they're wrong and give uh, you know, some references for each one. Like, you know, they'll say normal contrails fade away quickly and I'll explain that contrails can actually last a long time and I'll show them all these books uh, explaining you know what uh, that they've always done this. One of the trump cards of, of the whole presentation is that there is this supposedly um, pristine pond 
that uh, they, you know, they claim to have measured, and uh, there's just an outrageous amount of aluminum in these other metals that are in the pond. Uh, they claim that there's no way that any of this uh, could have gotten in there. It's just rainwater and whatever has been falling, and since they claim that chemtrails are being sprayed over this area, it fits in with their uh, theory. So uh, talk to me a little bit about how you responded to that. The first thing to note about that pond is that they, they show it in the film and they show some fish in it, but you can see that the pond is actually, uh, you can see the bottom of the pond and it's dark and it's got dirt on it. Uh, dirt actually contains a lot of minerals like uh, aluminosilicates, which contain aluminum. So if you get dirt and you analyze it, you are going to get results for lots and lots of aluminum. And if you take water that's just a little bit uh, dirty, like it's got a little bit of dirt in it, you're going to get aluminum in it. Now, you've got to think about dust. It's very dry in the summer and the ground dries out and the wind blows dust around. If you were to leave your car out, eventually it's going to get a layer of dust on it. If you can picture a pond, which is a very large surface area, that's going to get a lot of dust just falling out of the sky, basically. So what was on the ground is going to end up in the pond. Even if you, you know, had a pond that had no inputs and no outputs, no streams going in or out, just was just sat there, it's eventually going to get dirty because of the dust coming out of the, out of the sky. If you look at how they actually tested it, if you look at the test results, it says right there, pond sediment. And underneath that, it says sludge. Even if they were measuring the water, they're going to get some aluminum because it's all mixed in there. But they weren't even measuring that. They were measuring the sludge, the sediment at the bottom of the pond, which is basically not much better than getting a handful of dirt uh, tossing it into a cup, mixing it up, and then testing that. Well, I think it's kind of entered into the chemtrail mythology that there are these certain tests that were done. You know, they talk about a, a pond on the top of a mountain conjures up this image of this pristine water trickling down uh, from the top of a mountain. Or they talk about snow melt. That's another one that they do. They have uh, another sample, which was snow, and that conjures up an image of something that should be pristine and pure. And then when it's not, they, uh, you know, they get all suspicious. So it's kind of become mythologized. And I think part of that is because the people doing the tests themselves, Dane Wigington and uh, uh, Michael J. Murphy, who made the film, they didn't really understand the actual science. They didn't understand that dirt contained aluminum and that if you tested uh, water with dirt in it, you're going to get a result for aluminum. So they were surprised by this. And because their friendly scientist uh, trusted them and respected them, he is basically taking their description of events at face value. And so they're telling him they had this pond which should have returned no aluminum, and yet it was returning aluminum. And he turns around and thinks, oh, well, you know, they must have been testing this pure water from somewhere. And so uh, it shouldn't have had aluminum in, so that proves it. So what about the diseases? I mean, there are so goddamn many of them. Just as we saw with the absurd list of substances that chemtrails supposedly contain, the fact that the chemtrail conspiracy exists only in believers' minds means any physical, mental, or psychosomatic condition they suffer can be blamed on the invisible menace. Our friends at What in the World Are They Spraying are on top of this one, visiting a former Arizona state senator who has some pretty bold claims about the supposed effects of the chemtrail she imagines being sprayed over her house. You know, if people wonder why their health is deteriorating, why they're having to go to emergency rooms, why they can't breathe, you know, why they're getting Alzheimer's, this has been planned. 
we have elites, I don't know what you want to call them, one worlders, Illuminati, I don't know, whatever you want to call them. But with these people that don't care about the average person. They only care about themselves, their greed, their power. And if they eliminate, you know, two-thirds, three-fourths of us from the planet, so much for the better for them. Because then they don't have so many people to have to herd around and worry about. So this is... Uh, this is so chemtrails are responsible for... Lung disease, Alzheimer's, mood disorders. Wait, this is a kind of a long list. Dana Unicorn, take it away. Neck pain, stiff neck, stomach cramps, headaches, sinus problems, nausea, dizziness, lightheadedness, unable to catch breath, dry cough, weepy, feeling of sadness, crying spells, no energy, masverite fatigue, loose bowels, feeling disconnected, spaced out, can't focus thoughts, confusion, deep coldness, heat flushes, depression, anxiety, tight chest, congestion, gets worse when lying down, Body pain, soreness all over, dramatic mood swings, anger, sadness, earaches, sore throat, tightness in shoulders, both at one side, going into neck, head and sinuses, metallic case and stomach acid problems, so, confession time. Though we have a very high opinion of ourselves, we here at the Paranoid Strain are not technically qualified to offer medical opinions regarding the supposed effects that invisible, evidence-free conspiracies are having on the gullible. Fortunately, though, we know a guy. We are very pleased to introduce our first-ever Paranoid Strain medical segment, featuring our special correspondent, Dr. Captain Rob. While not actually a captain, Rob is in fact an honest-to-God doctor, so we asked him to comment on some of the most colorful health claims made by the chemtrail believers. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Captain Rob. Could you please just outline your qualifications to be the paranoid strain medical correspondent? I am a I'm a board certified otolaryngologist. I have completed fellowships in facial plastics and in rhinology, endoscopic sinus surgery, and I, I think most importantly, I was your former resident advisor. So chemtrail believers have a large number of medical issues. The suggestion is that under these chemtrail areas, there are increased numbers of birth defects and that those are related to chemtrails. Uh, you know, birth defects, you know, are, are tragic. The majority of them are not really explained. People will search for, for a particular reason. And, and I think a lot of what goes on with conspiracy theories, with things that medicine doesn't know yet, we can't tell you what causes most birth defects. Usually it, it's, it's some, some form of chromosomal abnormality. And oftentimes it happens early enough in development that the uh, fetus never makes it and, and is miscarried. But for the for the birth defects that do occur, typically if they occur at, 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 a, at a prevalence, at a frequency, at an incidence that's sufficient to be studied, they can usually track them back to some type of exposure. Exposures to uh, heavy metals not thought to be uh, prominent causes of, of birth defects, and the amount of exposure is usually enough that you can trace them back to a source for, for random, unexplained birth defects for which the, you know, for which the physician can't give you a reason. I, I can see why, you know, patients would search for some other explanation why a tragedy occurred. And for a lot of those, you don't have a reason. One of the big things that people claim are rashes and then also aches and pains. What, what I, I would do the next time you purchase any medication of any type at a pharmacy, read the package insert and you will find aches and pains, rashes, fever, GI upset, everything is listed and required by the FDA as a, as a potential side effect of this medication. And so if baby aspirin can provide rashes, GI upset, headache, uh, I think headache is the number one, two, or three side effect of virtually every medication. 
and this is just a function of the way we do studies, these things get listed as side effects. And so I think it's part of the human condition, certainly part of the human condition in a first world country that rashes, malaise, fatigue, cloudy thoughts, aches and pains are something that get ascribed to medications. So you have the same response with uh, placebos too. People also complain about short-term memory loss. This is another one of those amorphous things that's probably ill-defined. I tend to think of those things as part of the aging process, maybe. Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. And some of this is the nature of the country we live. I mean, I'd be curious what the incidence of hot and cold flashes and forgetfulness is in uh, Malawi. Like, I, I bet it's lower. You know, there's more information available to patients through the internet than ever before, which in some ways is a good thing, but the quality of the information is just not as well vetted. If you have a quality doctor and you go to them for um, intermittent aches and pains that resolve without therapy, hopefully that doctor will encourage you to continue to live a happy life and not prescribe, you know, massage or acupuncture or cupping, or uh, at least they will uh, encourage you to... Uh, uh, not to embrace the contrail, but maybe not to run away from it. One of the main accusations is that chemtrails cause Alzheimer's disease. The current understanding of Alzheimer's from a non-neurologist is that you have a buildup of plaques. Those plaques are now thought to be lesions or abnormalities um, on the surface of nerves outside of cells, and they alter neurologic function. You can think of it as kind of slowing down normal nerve impulses because of extra debris on the wires. Probably about 20 or 30 years ago, they, there was a concern that aluminum-containing products could be related to uh, Alzheimer's disease. There was even discussion of you know, the uh, aluminum oxide in antiperspirants that are used to block sweat glands could be associated with breast cancer and perhaps Alzheimer's disease. And, and typically, you know, the, the way science works is you come up with an observation, uh, you come up with a disease uh, process that really involves some patient population in particular, and then you track back to find out, well, how is that exposure related? The favorite example is testicular cancer and chimney sweeps. Men who were involved, and they were a lot closer to things, and they found this particular type of cancer, and so they track that. That's a fairly easy way to track things back. You find some population that has an extensive exposure who has a higher prevalence of the disease process, and then you can find causation. So for Alzheimer's, there's not really that situation. You, know, you don't have a particular population. Clearly, the best thing they would do to prove that aluminum causes Alzheimer's disease would go to people who have occupational exposure to aluminum. They go to some sort of factory industrial situation where people, um, and these are all regulated by uh, worksite, um, someone who's exposed to aluminum products as a vapor. And if those people are not getting Alzheimer's disease at a greater incidence than others, then maybe there's nothing there. Certainly, if you're working in a factory not getting it, it's not the same thing as having it sprayed at 35,000 feet. Probably the worst way to disperse a chemical weapon would be to, to put it at six to seven miles up. The most potent chemical weapon wouldn't cause any damage to the people below it. So now on to probably the most important thing that we need to cover, the dreaded morgulons. Now... Uh, we have dealt with this disease uh, in this show before, but could you please give us a quick primer on what Morgulons is? Sure. And so you know, I've, had, I've had limited but memorable contact with patients with this affliction. Uh, people have a belief that they bring these fibers or granules either from intact or, or irritated appearing skin, and it's a manifestation of some type 
of internal infestation or infection. It could be viral, it could be environmental, it could be an autoimmune process, but there's these um, typically a rash and typically some type of material that they can bring to you to show you. The thing that seems consistent is that there are fibers growing out of the skin and then also a feeling of itching under the skin. Now, the fibers are best left to you, but I'm pretty sure that itching under the skin is also a symptom of heavy meth use. The, the sensation of, of having bugs on the skin, I mean, it's so common. There, there's that, we call it fomication. Uh, it feels like ants crawling on the skin. There certainly could be an allergic response to it. I think what's interesting about morgulons is that there's this physical manifestation that they often bring to you. I, you know, I get it like in a little Ziploc bag, and, and it's certainly it's probably once or twice a year I'll see someone with this. Um, but they always have something to bring to you. It's always like that proof, or they have a photo because now everyone's uh, wired for sound and audio, so there's really no reason that you can't bring in video of the morgulons escaping your skin. I mean, there's this need to bring you some type of tangential proof, and I get where the patients are coming from. They have a problem, and it's not being remedied by, by traditional methods. But you have to look at it from a physician standpoint. We would love to diagnose a new disease and fix it. It would be awesome. And if you bring us this physical manifestation, do you know how much easier you're making it? If you're bringing us the infectious process, that goes to a lab. You can have the finest research people in the world review these fibers or granules and tell you what they're made out of. Doctors like fixing things. We would love to, to, to provide an answer for it. There, there's just nothing there. There's all kinds of skin uh, diseases that produce, you know, uh, thick skin, the, the spectrum of psoriasis or, or, or eczema, uh, allergic reactions. You know, people who have uh, neurotrophic skin disease where they have some degree of itching or allergic itching and the chronic irritation of their own skin, the skin produces a reaction which results in more itching and kind of scaling of the skin. I, I can't come up with a disease process that, that produces when people bring you millimeter thick hairs. I, I can't give you a, a, a disease I'm aware of that brings in colored fibers like that. Those are easily obtained by, you know, running a lint brush through your closet. A Ziploc bag full of uh, three to four microscopic fibers doesn't confirm that your neck pain is morgulons. So just to review, if morgulons doesn't exist, that makes it very difficult for it to be caused by an imaginary phenomenon like chemtrails. I'm going to agree with that. In your practice, uh, what, what would you say is the frequency of running into people who have very specific, very hard to shake self-diagnoses? I'm, of course, speaking specifically of chemtrails, folks, but really just generally where the Internet combines WebMD and easily accessible conspiracy theories about health. Uh, what's the best way to deal with that? The vast majority of patients only want to get better because it's a hassle to go see the doctor and wait in a waiting room. And so really only someone who is truly insane would enjoy paying a copay, waiting in an office, seeing a doctor for a disease that they know to be fake, only to be pushed off on someone else or told not to come back. I, I look at, one, what can I provide for them that's going to address their symptoms? There must be something there. If Morgulons exist, and I do not believe that it does, and medical science hasn't given it a name because it is not an accepted disease process, so I don't, I certainly would never play into someone's poorly held belief 
of a disease. Part of the, the, the doctor role is to actually teach them, educate them, and, and not give them a hug and say, no, I know this morgulans is a rough one. We're going to beat it. There's the old maxim in medicine that even crazy people get sick too. You know, Maybe they've got some significant you know, metabolic problem, and, and that's why they're not thinking straight. I, I think anything I can do to keep someone in the spectrum of understood, established, peer-reviewed medicine, and because if we don't provide some assistance for them, the only thing they have is the internet and peach pits and whatever it is that if we just turn them out and say, you know what, you know, you're crazy, come back in a year, they're going to go find something else and someone's going to make money off them in a way that's not going to benefit them. Well, thank you very much. And I have only one final definitive question. Is chemtrails a huge medical public health emergency? I'm going to go with no, but I, I will say while I'm speaking to you, I just had a morgulon crawl out of my skin. Dr. Captain Rob, our new medical correspondent, thank you very much. On to our next True Believer article of faith. This one focuses on the fact that the American military would really, really, fucking really love to get their hands on some weather control technology. Well, duh. What military wouldn't want that? Clearing skies on demand for a bombing run, sending tornadoes pinwheeling through the enemy's lines, flinging tanks willy-nilly. But it's a fantasy. Yes. You and I know it's a fantasy. Chemtrail believers, though. Mmm... In 1996, a group of Air Force wonks got together and wrote a paper that projected U.S. weather modification techniques forward 30 years in the future. It was called Weather as a Force Multiplier, Owning the Weather in 2025, and it put forth some pie-in-the-sky ideas for how the military could exploit projected trends in weather manipulation technology to gain a strategic advantage in future conflicts. In their introductory Imagine This section, they propose a scenario in which the U.S. is, in 2025, fighting a South American drug cartel using some straight-up storm from the X-Men shit. Prior to the attack, which is coordinated with forecasted weather conditions, the drones begin cloud generation and seeding operations. UAVs disperse a serious shield to deny enemy visual and infrared surveillance. Other cloud seeding operations cause a developing thunderstorm to intensify over the target, severely limiting the enemy's capability to defend. The WFSE monitors the entire operation in real time and notes the successful completion of another very important but routine weather modification mission. Sure, it's been optioned as the opening for Transformers 6, but just as the military is currently at a loss to leverage Optimus Prime as a strategic asset, so the assumptions that this late 90s research paper made are rather ahead of the state of the art. Look, the folks who wrote this are science-focused military nerds. Given the assignment of imagining the way that technology might help the Air Force control the weather, they're likely to go hog-fucking-wild, dreaming up rosy, the future is so totally rad, you guys, scenarios to build excitement among the powers that be to fund their preoccupations. It's the sort of what-if scenario that my friends and I dreamed up in our mid-80s action movie-obsessed childhoods. Dude, what if we had a time machine and sent back a bunch of F-15s and Arnold Schwarzenegger to fight the Nazis? Meanwhile, conspiracy theorists, their formidable imaginations already in overdrive, embrace the, quote, proof that this paper provides. Clearly, if these guys are saying back in the 90s that the military will control the weather by the 2020s, then the military must be two-thirds of the way there. That's just math, people. Of course, if technological advances worked as cleanly and predictably as this view implies, 
you'd be listening to the show on a BlackBerry, and your home ENIAC computer would be the size of a Buick. Claiming this paper constitutes irrefutable evidence that the government has mastered the weather is like insisting the H.G. Wells classic From the Earth to the Moon proves NASA has used a cannon to cheaply fire astronauts into space, but they're keeping it a secret as a favor to Big Rocket. Now, this isn't to say that the military doesn't have a big, angry hard-on for controlling the weather. It's just there's no good indication they've gotten past first base at this point. For example, the U.S., along with governments and militaries around the world, have experimented with cloud seeding, a technique that is a real thing. Unlike chemtrails. And it does seem to have some effect on the weather in a limited way. Or maybe it doesn't. The study's results conflict. In any case, if it does work, its effect is marginal at best, but it's a solid bet that the tradition of using silver iodide in cloud seeding operations fueled the conspiracist conviction that chemtrails contain heavy metals. It's also indisputable that the military has long taken a strong interest in contrails. Again, not chemtrails. Starting well before the paper miscited above, authors Brad and Sherry Steiger note that all the way back in the 1940s, Contrails gave away the position of U.S. bombers to the German fighter pilots hunting them, and many pilots and planes were lost as a result. This vulnerability provides an obvious reason for military involvement in experiments regarding contrails and the like. What causes them, what their properties are, and how to make them invisible. This military interest is most likely the springboard for the many conspiracy theories about secret government projects. You think? But what about the most notorious U.S. military academic project known as HARP, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program? Wait, what was that? You've never heard of it? Then you missed out on the biggest conspiracy theorist science boogeyman of the 90s and 2000s. Well, it should. My guest coming up is a, Dr. Nick Begich, an author, an investigator, a man who has written a book called Angels Don't Play This Harp, and he's sure not talking about one with strings. He's talking about the harp project in Alaska. We had a show in which um, we had these incredible reports rolling in about magnetic anomalies on local news here in San Diego, Channel 8, they ran a small clip on turtles that cannot seem to find their way to breeding grounds, and they're dying at sea. Scientists say it has something to do with water temperature, but also the navigation system of turtles could be off because of magnetic deviation. Could it have anything to do with HARP? Time to define Dr. terms again. According to the University of Alaska, which now runs the HARP program, it's the world's most capable high-power, high-frequency transmitter for study of the ionosphere. The ionosphere being the portion of the atmosphere that starts at about 60 kilometers up and extends to 500 kilometers, and is vital to radio communications. Scientists have therefore been attempting to study it for decades. HARP is the latest in a long line of instruments they have used for that purpose. The idea is the facility can create conditions that allow scientists to test their atmospheric theories rather than having to wait for the perfect conditions to occur naturally. It consists of 180 antennas arranged as a facility operating in the higher frequency range, used to temporarily excite a limited area of the ionosphere for scientific study. And of course, the instruments used to analyze the data thus obtained. But to what end? Observation of the processes resulting from the use of HARP in a controlled manner will allow scientists to better understand processes that occur continuously under the natural stimulation of the sun. HARP was funded by the military, and it's not as if they're in it for the pure joy of scientific discovery. Obviously, there are tons of military communications implications. And of course, if some sort of potential offensive capability arises out of this research, so much the better. The official FAQ notes these experiments could impact research on space weather, submarine communication techniques through extremely low frequency propagation, detection of cavities in the Earth and over the horizon radar. 
But the conspiracists imagine far worse and farther reaching effects. Some say it disrupts enemy military communications. Some say it could spit tornadoes into a war zone on command. Or it was ground-based Reagan-era Star Wars anti-missile technology. Or it causes earthquakes. Or triggers heart attacks. Or facilitates mind control. The ideas have become crazier since the late 90s when the facility first came online. Look, we took copious notes on a number of harp books, looking forward to deconstructing their arguments. But then late in the game, we came across a TV news report, broadcast in 1996 by the Canadian Broadcasting Company. And while normally we'd consider them a competent and circumspect news source, this conspiracy-friendly package by correspondent Wendy Mesley is so weirdly accepting of outrageous claims, it's just this side of the Art Bell Show. Which means we're tossing out our other notes, kicking back with a cold one, and letting her set up the pins for us to knock down. Jean Manning is a journalist who stumbled into a strange world when she started asking questions about alternative energy sources and heard the story of an early 20th century inventor named Nikola Tesla. Tesla is almost a cult hero and an overlooked genius. And he has so many inventions that are at the basis of technologies. That the first interview is with Jean Manning, co-author of Angels Don't Play This Harp, one of the first book-length anti-harp screeds. She traces her harp fixation back to Nikola Tesla. In addition to being the namesake for some pretty slick electric cars, Tesla is unquestionably both a super genius and a decidedly weird guy. He frequently serves as a cultural avatar for unfettered scientific imagination, as when legendary space alien David Bowie portrayed him in the criminally underappreciated Chris Nolan masterpiece, The Prestige. You are familiar with the phrase Man's reach exceeds his grasp is the lie. Man's grasp exceeds his nerve. Society only tolerates one change at a time. The first time I tried to change the world, I was hailed as a visionary. Second time, I was asked politely to retire. <laughs> Go home. Forget this thing. I can recognize an obsession. No good will come of it. Why well, hasn't good come of your obsessions? At first, but I followed them too long. I am their slave. And one day they will choose to destroy me. For the harp conspiracy true believers, Tesla's grand unrealized dreams for a weather control device serve as the inspiration for one Bernard Eastland. Remember how Archimedes believed that with a long enough lever and a place to stand, he could move the whole world? Well, Dr. Eastland thought the same thing, but about the effect of focused radio beams. Sure, he thought they could be used to study the ionosphere, but that's just the beginning. In his own words, he described his patents thus. He chose a, what's called a phased array antenna for the patents because it can be aimed. Picture holding your microwave oven in your hands with the door open. Then you can move it around and send those microwaves different directions. And for these applications where I wanted precise control of where the power was, uh, I felt that was the best type of antenna to use. And that is the kind that HARP has built. There were some other ideas, both to possibly modify weather, and finally uh, to lift a portion of the upper atmosphere further out into space. It but here's the thing. Eastland's ideas about what his patents could do are just like Tesla's claims. They've never been put into practice. In addition, the HARP facility that was built is not nearly as powerful as the one specified by Eastland's patents. 
As near as we can tell, no facility has ever been built to those specifications. In fact, the key issue for harp conspiracists is simply that the Alaskan array resembles Eastland's patents. It's like insisting Fluffy doesn't need her whiskas because she can just take down that full-speed gazelle. After all, house cats are just like smaller cheetahs, right? To get back to the CBC's breathless coverage, Nick Begich, co-author of the aforementioned Angels Don't Play This Harp, explains how he became convinced that the Alaska antenna array was more than it seemed. And what you have with HARP is sort of the universal hammer for geophysical warfare. Nick Begich is the chief conspiracy theorist. So when did you know that, that you were onto something? I think as soon as I saw the references to um, Tesla's work and when I read Bernard Eastland's original patents, I realized that what we really had uh, here in Alaska was a prototype for a ground-based Star Wars weapon system. But the problem is, the report can't dredge up anything approaching evidence for Begich and Manning's ideas of an unbroken chain of sci-fi weather control from Tesla to Eastland that culminates in HARP. Again, it's not as if the military wouldn't love to have a weather and earthquake control device as described by Eastland's patents. It's that there is literally zero evidence that any such device has ever been built, or that HARP has anything approaching these capabilities. This is the core of the HARP conspiracist v. researcher conundrum. Military's own baby, the net. Plans uh, for HARP activities uh, correlate with projections of what can be done in the Eastland patents. It's 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 that simple. So it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. Well, um, I hate to disagree with you, but uh, uh, it's not his patent that we're building. Superficially, yes, um, they send energy up into the ionosphere, but um, the uh, the Eastland patents require huge, prodigious, in fact, amounts of power. See, those Eastland patents were owned by a company that was swallowed up by a company that was then swallowed up by Raytheon, the military technology juggernaut. And a subsidiary of Raytheon helped to build HARP. But that's hardly surprising that the military used a military subcontractor to build a science base funded by the military, right? There are voices of sanity throughout this report. For example, a woman who is derisively referred to as the company woman comes off as someone who has spent more time than she prefers to admit dealing with other people's crazy ideas about the place where she works. There's a lot of people around here that have a really lot of strange ideas, and I think many of them are pretty bizarre. Michelle Angbritson you know keeps the HARP computers from freezing up in between visits from the military scientists. Well, do you know, I mean, do you understand what they're, what they're doing here when well, the scientists the, come in? You mean when the scientists come in and shoot the beams up? Yeah, they're uh, shooting the beams up and I think that heats a little small space in the ionosphere. And then uh, you've got guys that are sitting on computers. You've got uh, people putting up weather poles that measure weather and everything like that. I mean, there's not that spooky going on here. But no matter how often their suggestions are poo-pooed, conspiracists will not be deterred. As Angels puts it, HARP will boil the upper atmosphere. It's an advanced model of an ionospheric heater. HARP is a test run for a super powerful radio wave beaming technology that raises the temperature of areas of the ionosphere by focusing a beam and heating those areas. Electromagnetic waves then bounce back to Earth, penetrating everything, living and dead. And that's only the beginning. In fact, HARP enthusiasts are quick to marry the program to the sinister chemtrails they love so much. Conspiracist Terence Smart connects the dots as follows. HARP is an exotic weapon system that is part of the weaponization of space. Covert aerosol spraying. Chemtrails have transformed the Earth's atmosphere into a plasma that is used for harp-directed energy scalar weapons, mind controls, weather warfare, and tectonic warfare weapons applications. 
while the somewhat more skeptical Rod and Sherry Steiger note, Some conspiracists are adamant in their claims that HARP, a secret weapon system that taps into the limitless plenum of energy surrounding Earth, uses chemtrails as frequency reflectors from its ground and space bases so that it might direct its binary weapon systems against whatever segment of the human population is designated as a target. Once again, we see a real-world phenomenon, the HARP Research Facility, which reasonable people could agree was funded by the military and probably has implications that aren't available to the average taxpayer, but the conspiracists take Tesla's, Eastman's, really anyone's statements about what a super-powerful version of this technology might do sometime with enough research and funding and a much larger facility, and then they claim those pie-in-the-sky ideas are reality, right now, overhead, affecting your weather, making you sick because they have secret goals, and they want to kill you. Yeesh. So what's left? Just the claim that chemtrails are used for geoengineering. Once again, this is a real, if speculative, thing. Geoengineering, not chemtrails. Scientists concerned about the, if you'll pardon the expression, glacial pace at which our attempts to protect our polar ice caps are proceeding, have proposed a variety of ways that we can use technology to try to ameliorate the effects of climate change. These include cloud seeding on steroids, spraying reflective particles of substances like sulfur into the atmosphere to mimic the global cooling effects of volcanic clouds, placing reflective materials over parts of deserts or oceans, etc. But while such talk is barely in the idea phase, and even discussions about the possibility of using geoengineering is hotly controversial, chemtrails loons are offering this preliminary talk as proof positive that their claims about chemtrails are simply a reflection of the reality that geoengineering is being carried out above our heads every day. Returning to what in the world are they spraying, we find our intrepid documentarians crashing a geoengineering conference. Spoiler! They don't like what they hear there. An ominous plot. Our journey started in San Diego, California, where thousands of scientists, engineers, policymakers, and journalists gathered for the American Association for the Advancement of Science Conference. One of the topics was the artificial manipulation of the Earth's climate, also called geoengineering. During the meeting, scientists spoke about the plausibility of implementing geoengineering campaigns throughout the world under the guise of preventing global warming. One widely accepted theory was to block the sun by spraying something into the atmosphere. When they were asked about existing aerosol programs, they stated clearly that no such programs have ever been implemented. But strangely, these proposals sounded exactly like what people around the world are claiming has already happened. They find exactly what they're looking for, which in this case is cautious scientists speaking carefully in response to hypothetical questions. On toxifying soils and waters. The question is, what would be the effects of these materials on human health if they came down into the stratosphere, in, uh, in, in particular uh, small particles and aluminum? So, so the, the collaborators in mind working on the aerosol scheme are actually folks from Carnegie Mellon who focused on human health impacts. And while we haven't published it, that was the very first thing we did, was do the order of magnitude calculation in a level pencil and paper, but with an expert on human health impacts about whether there could be an issue. And, and for aluminum or other particles, there are a lot of toxicological things that need to get looked at seriously. But if you're just thinking about the sheer number of particles and the human health impact of small particles, the answer is, well, we haven't published it. That was the first thing we looked at with some of the leading experts who do uh, epidemiological research on human health impacts, and it's not even close to... See, that kind of long, winding, caveat-filled response is what you get when you ask a serious specialist about extremely preliminary research that hasn't even been published yet. This, of course, isn't enough for our chemtrail heroes, who follow up, a little inaudibly, asking Dr. Keith, the scientist in question, if he's saying that 10 megatons of aluminum dumped into the atmosphere would have no human health effects, to which he responds. 
So, so let me be more careful here. We're to separate out the toxicological. So the Illumina, we've only begun to research and published nothing. Illumina, we've only begun to research and published but nothing. But damn it if the filmmakers aren't convinced that they've nailed him dead to rights. Did they? You be the judge. He looked at him and he said, so you're telling me that spraying 10 to 20 megatons of aluminum, as you said, would have no human health effects? He took a deep breath and he swallowed and he said, let me be more careful here. We haven't done anything serious on Illumina, and so there could be something terrible that we'll find tomorrow we haven't looked at. And that, for me, that was the whole main point of, of what is, is going to be coming out to the public. It's, it's the damaging effects of aluminum that are being found around the world in massive amounts. Here's David Keith confronted on this very issue, and he, he looked, you know, at that point, like, like they just let the cat out of the bag. Mm-hmm. We haven't Wait, what it. the fuck is this guy hearing? just what he wants to, and nothing else. It gets more confusing from there. Remember that these folks firmly believe that a massive global chemtrail spraying operation is already going on, right? So then how can we interpret the following pearl-clutching soliloquy by journalist and chemtrail believer Stuart Howe? It's clear now that they are justifying, rationalizing, and looking to uh, legitimize some really, really horrible impacts, further impacts on our environment. And they're basically formulating the sales strategy and the implementation and oversight strategy and the funding strategy. Did you catch the confusion there? Why would these scientists be nefariously testing out the sales strategy for a program that's already going on in secret? What's the need for a funding or a control strategy if the program is already up and running? It's almost as if the whole chemtrails equals geoengineering argument is utter horseshit. Yes, almost. Later, one of their fellow loons rants. It, it seems to be an industry that's being built up to, uh, to milk the taxpayers by undergoing some kind of a giant a spraying, global spraying program to make all kinds of money on the project. And they don't seem to care really what effect it has. They're not trying to experiment to see if humans can survive it or anything like that. They just want to get this stuff up. And then we discover as we're going further down the line that there are companies generating a, a genetically modified organisms or seeds, uh, modified seed crops that are they're being engineered to resist the aluminum in the soil. And a lot of crops won't grow in that. And so now, after they've messed up the soil, all the farmers are going to have to go back and uh, buy seeds that have been yeah. genetically engineered to resist the aluminum that have been put into the soil. And all of a sudden, uh, mankind is completely dependent upon these uh, companies like Monsanto and other giant uh, agricultural firms. You can't even grow natural seeds anymore. And we're looking at that. It, it's, a, it's a shocking thing. I hope, I hope we don't find that that's true. But all the arrows right now are pointing in that direction. So now, the explanation for the spraying is a conspiracy to destroy natural seeds. But it's also for geoengineering. And companies are making money on it even though it's actually a money-losing attempt to combat global warming secretly using tax dollars. But maybe global warming is fake, so there's another reason they're already doing this totally secretly, but also they're hosting symposia on the topic that are open to the public, and Monsanto's done some questionable shit in the past, so let's just drop their names in there too. 
in the end, this is a film about an imaginary threat featuring a group of ill-informed, self-designated experts lobbing half-formed allegations at the process of scientific discussion and review as the ex post facto justification for their existing belief in a plot that is already taking place. The reasons they offer for this grand deception are mutually contradictory and backed up by the flimsiest possible evidence. It's kind of like genius comedian Dana Gould's definition of reality TV shows. Because you will never experience less reality than when you're watching a reality show. You're watching people who aren't actors put into situations created by people who aren't writers and they're second-guessing how they think you would like to see them behave if this were a real situation, which it's not. And you are passively observing this. You're watching an amateur production of nothing. Even with all that, I find it hard not to feel for the filmmakers or their interviewees. I challenge you to watch this thing and believe that anyone involved is acting in bad faith. They're trying to clarify the world as they understand it, which is part of what makes this so frustrating and also such a wonderful example of paranoid strain thinking. We'll leave this film with an excerpt from Desiree Rover, self-described medical researcher and, according to our Google search, also an anti-vaxxer loon. In the years that I have been a medical research journalist, I have looked at many, many things, and I found the same three issues in whatever I'm looking at. And that is that we are being dumbed down, we are being made sicker, and we are being made infertile. This is kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. But Ms. Rover's impassioned plea flies directly in the face of three of the best understood phenomena in the modern world, namely the Flynn effect, by which each generation is measurably more intelligent than the one before, the dramatic increase in global health and lifespan, which includes the period during which we've supposedly been sprayed, and the fact that the global population is at an all-time high. But as with all similar conspiracy thinking, simply refuting their nonsense is kind of beside the point. But fun! Yes, and fun. Indeed, of the crazies we've covered so far, the chemtrail true believers are the first ones I find kind of sympathetic. Not their beliefs. Hopefully we've demonstrated that the entire background of the chemtrail hysteria and attendant conspiracy theories is an evidence-free tapestry of delusion and misinformation. But it seems like a lot of people out there are in considerable pain, be it physical or mental, and they've had difficulty finding a cause of and treatment for their afflictions in spite of the miracles of modern medicine. Maybe they have undiagnosed mental issues. Maybe it's just some deeper ennui about the isolation of modern life. But for whatever reason, they've decided to shake their fists at the sky and blame a sinister government cabal for what ails them. No, there's no good basis for their beliefs, and they would be better suited by meeting reality on reality's terms. But on the bright side, unlike our previous subjects, they're not shooting people or blowing up buildings. We take some small comfort in that. And now, we're overjoyed to present our final segment. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. So far, most of these profiles have fallen more into the Barry Caesar category than the Praise Him camp, but in this case, I'm an honest-to-God, unrepentant fanboy. To paint a quick picture, imagine a young man in the mid-90s, staying up late because of his first dead-end swing shift night job. No career, 
No girl, uncertain prospects. But every weeknight, around midnight, he gets to mainline a dose of absolute crazy pants, broadcast from the high desert in Pahrumpf, Nevada. From the high desert in the great American Southwest, I bid you all good evening or good morning, as the case may be, across all these time zones, stretching commercially from the Hawaiian and Tahitian Islands out west, eastward to the Caribbean and the U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, north, definitely all the way to the pole, and worldwide on the Internet. This is Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. Glad to be here this morning. It's going to be... Open lines all night long. Art Bell was a pioneer in bellwether, sorry, of the brand of paranoia that stalked the decade, the same current that led to hysteria about black helicopters, declarations that the Y2K bug would bring down civilization, and the popularity of agents Mulder and Scully. The show itself is impossible to synopsize, though we invite you to dive deep into the archive, available on Bell's website, which you'll find in the show notes. Sorry to say, they're only available in real player format because the 90s. In its heyday, the show would pinwheel from topic to topic on a nightly and sometimes a minute-to-minute basis if Art was having a listener call-in focused show. I'm at a loss to explain how crazy the guests and callers were and how calm and uncritical Bell's responses. This is a man who would open up a phone line so time travelers could call and give us warnings about future catastrophes that they had supposedly been sent back in time to give us 12 Monkey style calls himself Single Seven. Single, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, first of all, thank you for coming on the air. You're welcome. I need to tell everyone about this after the New Guinea tsunami. I'm quite concerned. The New Guinea tsunami? Yes, sir. All right, let's begin. You say at the time of this writing, I am in grave danger. Do you think you're going to be killed? It's a good chance. I got rid of my homing device, but they're still able, they catch up with me from time to time. Not only do I have to worry about my Trav T group, that's the group I came back with, I have to also worry about the alien MIM. You're talking about, you said Trav T group? Yes, our travel time group. Um, you claim to be coming from the year 2063, correct? Correct. 2063, I'm a paleo ag tech. When? I'm not a weather tech, I'm a paleo-ag tech, and we're trying, in the future, they're trying to change the weather. What, what is a paleo-ag tech? Uh, it, it's kind of boring, I find it fascinating, but I'll, a brief description is, I, I was sent back to find the earlier cousins of corn, wheat, tomatoes, things that can survive in a hotter temperature so we can have them back. We'll use them to splice and make hybrids into the future. I've got you. Because we, we need to raise the temperature. Or he might have a line available only to the Antichrist, which you would think would be a zero or at most one caller affair. But of course he'd field dozens, ranging from obvious trolls to the clearly deranged to just people doing their best death metal demon voice. That possibility. If you think you're the Antichrist, or you even, uh, if you even just a little bit think you're the Antichrist, well, now is the time to call. The Antichrist line is hereby uh, officially open. You're on the air. My now, name is Nicholas. Nicholas. I'm from Kentucky. 
six months. You believe that you're the Antichrist for six months? And I would not claim to believe that, but it's something that seems to be coming uh, forced upon me. Forced? Well, of course, you can't help yourself, right? No, it, it doesn't seem so. In, uh, in what way has it begun to manifest? You're on the air. Hello. Hello. You, uh, you claim to be the Antichrist? I claim to know what I know and to be who I am. You're on the air. Hello, my child. Child? Your child? It is I. It is you, huh? It's really you. The one and only. How, how are we to know? How, what can you tell us that will make us believe you are the one? You live now and you are the one. There is evil everywhere. For I am the one giving it out. You're actually His show was the launching pad not only for William Thomas's chemtrail rantings, but for a huge variety of topics, including black helicopter, New World Order hysteria, the imminent flipping of the Earth's magnetic poles, the destruction that would come in the distant future date of 2012, possibly at the hands of the legendary hidden planet Nibiru. We'll get to it. And holy God, did we hear a lot about how the Y2K bug would be the death of us all. Anywho, expect to hear from Coast to Coast in many future episodes. Seen from this distance, the Salad Days of Bell's show was a good-hearted, seemingly sincere effort to give voice to ideas that had no other outlet in the late 90s. And while he seems like he might be a very weird dude, I'd love nothing more than to crack a few beers with Art. Still, though, there's no doubt that he, along with William Thomas and all of the other true believers who promoted chemtrails as anything but the bullshit that they are, contributed mightily to the spread of a very paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Follow us on Twitter at Paranoid Strain, email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, and visit us on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Special thanks to our interviewee, Mick West, a.k.a. Cirrus. You can follow his excellent work fighting chemtrail nonsense at the indispensable contrailscience.com. We welcome and thank official Paranoid Strain medical correspondent, Dr. Captain Rob, to the fold, as well as new contributor, voiceover artist extraordinaire, The Big D. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Final mixing assistance comes from Big Mucho, who also put together our super-duper website, and Willem UFO makes the pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next episode, we explore the phenomenon of false flags, both real and imagined. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or, at least, not you specifically.